I've often thought that communion is something we describe as a celebration of communion. Uh, And when Presbyterians say that, they mean that we are going through the uh, rota of, the rota is not the right word, we're going through the, the means of working through the Lord's Supper, but the idea of actual celebration uh, uh, in terms of joy and dancing and all the rest may not be the, the uppermost uh, kind of thoughts in our minds. So when we sang that uh, version of Jesus Loves Me, I don't think I've ever sung that uh, with an adult group uh, before. Uh, sang that, I had visions of communion services, telling them about before uh, in spring harvest where all of us on stage, the speakers, were uh, inveigled by the worship leader, Graham Kendrick, into a conga around the stage. Uh, And so I I, kind of think if, you know, you need to be praying that God doesn't just lay in my heart that before we finish tonight, we'll repeat Jesus loves me with a conga around the church. Um, Some may find that appalling, but you know what? This is something to celebrate. But what I want us to think about tonight in uh, what we read from Romans chapter 8 and in our thinking around that word is uh, something that should cause us to celebrate because this is not a celebration of a dead Jesus. This is the celebration of one whose life and death and resurrection and second coming we hold as central to our beliefs, but it's also a reminder that we go eventually through many celebrations of this communion, eventually to see Jesus face to face. But how do we live for Christ in the power of God's Spirit until then? And that, I think, is partly what uh, this talk this evening is tonight. Uh, Romans 8, 1 to 11, and then we'll read verses 26 and 27. So let's uh, Hear God's word together, Romans 8 and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what their nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have set their minds on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. 
I'm going down to verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Let's pray. Oh God, I ask that you would speak to us from your word, that it may be powerful and meaningful and relevant and challenging and encouraging and uplifting to us tonight. For I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Romans is considered to be probably the most difficult book in the New Testament linguistically. Uh, The Greek is, I understand, a highly stylized, complicated kind of language, the language of a very educated person, a language that is is there to be uh, enjoyed by those who appreciate the richness of language, but sometimes I think we find it a little bit hard to struggle with. Uh, And uh, one of the great things about the book of Romans, I uh, don't have permission from the particular family member to tell this or not say which family member it was, but we had a family member one time who really was struggling in faith. Uh, And uh, then they came to me on one occasion and said, I've been reading Romans. And I thought, wow, I didn't think this person would be reading the Bible at all at that stage. Uh, And this person said to me, It's all there in Romans. It is the whole gospel. Uh, And they had got it in one because this is the most incredible exposition of what it is to be a Christian, what we understand by the gospel, what we understand by what Jesus has done for us. The whole book of Romans, if you had no other uh, letter in the New Testament to read apart from Romans, uh, then you would uh, be very well served by looking at Romans. And particularly, may I say, some of our young people, I'd love you to struggle uh, and wrestle with the language of Romans, for when you get Romans, you get the whole story. But tonight we're dipping into chapter 8, uh, and we do so in the midst of, you know, we come into the middle of a book, and Paul has already spoken about a lot of different things. He begins with a self-appraisal of his ministry. He speaks of the sinfulness of man, the dangers of religion, and the reality of God's judgment. One of the most important aspects of his teaching that led in part to the Protestant Reformation is his understanding that Christians who have been justified by faith have full assurance of being saved in the last day when we face God. Neither sin, which he talks about in chapter 6, nor the law, which he talks about in chapter 7, can stand in the way of our vindication before God in Christ. Maybe you don't think you need to be vindicated before God through Christ. But how on earth can you and I as sinners be vindicated before a holy God who demands that the righteous requirements of his law be met and fulfilled? It is Christ who vindicates us. It is Christ who makes us right with God. It is Christ who vindicates us to the Father and say, no, no, that that son or daughter of mine is genuinely part of my family. 
he or she is the one I've died for. They have met my love with theirs. My spirit lives in them. You must accept them as part of my family. We are vindicated through Christ uh, with God. And so the new international version that we use as the standard version in church entitles chapter 8 of Romans as life through the Spirit. And there are a number of things I want us to uh, note this evening as we prepare for communion and celebrate what God has done for us. And here's the first thing. The Holy Spirit brings new power. Verses 1 to 4. I'm not going to uh, read them. I don't know if they'll come up on the screen there or not, but uh, let's just... uh, take them as read at the moment, beginning, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can there possibly be no condemnation for us as Christians because of sin? Don't we still sin? Didn't Paul, who wrote these words, also write about the reality of struggling with sin in the previous chapter, chapter 7? In fact, let's look at some of what he said, chapter 7 and verses 18 and 19. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I'm so glad the Apostle Paul wrote that. Here is a man who planted churches, who wrote the most incredible theology, who was the most incredibly influential figure in first century Christianity. And he says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. You see, there's some people who think that when you come to faith in Jesus, you're made perfect. And that, therefore, when you sin and let God down, and when you fail and when you fall, that somehow it's such a terrible thing that God would despise you and never want to pick you up again or touch you again. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. In fact, he says more than that. He says, the good that I would do, I cannot do at times. And I keep on doing wrong things or bad things. Uh, And, of course, this would be a depressing and terrible situation to be in, except for one thing. Uh, And we haven't time to go into it tonight, but if you look a little bit further down, chapter 7 of verses 24 and the first part just of 25. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, I just can't win the battle against sin. I just can't live for Jesus on my own. I just cannot do it. But thanks be to God, he has given me his spirit. Now, he doesn't use those words in verses 24 and 25, but that's what he has in mind. The truth is that this side of heaven, we will always struggle with sin. But the enormous difference is that as Christians, we need no longer live in sin as Paul puts it in these verses, but rather we live in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, but servants of Jesus Christ. We are no longer outside of the family of God, but we are incorporated into his body, the church. We are inextricably linked with Jesus the head of the body, organically linked to the body, cut the head of the body, the body dies, 
And no matter what happens in the body, sometimes things going awry, as long as the body is connected with the head, there's life and vigor and vitality. And that is who we are. We are the family of God, the body of Christ. And because of our position in Christ, Paul says there's no longer any condemnation because we've been set free from the guilt and the power of sin. Now, I wish I could understand or know how to make this crystal clear to us, because I know the enemy of our faith, the enemy of my faith, makes many of us feel riddled with guilt and condemnation. When I think of the ways that I have blown it in the past, when I think of the things that I have done that I would be ashamed were they to be written on one of these screens behind me, when I think of how my head could hang in shame, I have to come back to these words, that in Christ there is no longer any condemnation. For some reason, many Christians cannot believe that God can truly and really forgive our sins, truly promise as He's promised to do to remember them no more. So how can we live in the Spirit, free from a sense of condemnation for our sin, our failures to live as God's children? Well, apparently the word that Paul used that is translated condemnation carries with it in the Greek language both the notion of the sentence and the execution of it. So you see, this is what has happened. The sentence has been passed on all human beings. Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. But, and it would be an enormous tragedy to read Romans 6, 23, without going to the second half of that verse, which says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guy I know went to, and you've heard me saying this before, forgive the repetition, but I love the story. He went to America to preach, and uh, he wanted to make a big impression on his American hosts, and uh, he decided that what he would uh, speak on were the four big butts of Scripture. And uh, he had his talk well prepared, and he stood up in this great, vast auditorium, and he said, I want to tell you, friends, about the biggest butts in Scripture, and the people began to laugh. Uh, and uh, he got a bit flustered, but he said, and the first but is this, and the second but is that, and people began to laugh more and more, and he really didn't understand that the Americans used the word but in a slightly different way uh, from himself. But if you want to know the biggest and greatest but in Scripture, it's Romans 6 and 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, you see, there's the secret, it's a gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we celebrate in communion is that the death sentence that we deserve has been commuted to life in heaven, not even life in prison or life in a miserable existence on earth, but the death sentence we deserve has been commuted to life everlasting in heaven. And more than that, we have been set free from the prison of sin to live a life in all its fullness. The Christ who gives us his spirit to help us and guide us is the one who enables us by his power to live for him. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You need not live with guilt and condemnation. 
let me repeat that, you need not live with guilt and condemnation. An old commentator, Professor T.W. Manson, put it this way. Moses' law has right, but not might. You see, that was the difficulty with the Old Testament law. Nobody could keep it. Sin's law has might, but not right. We all have sinned, and we all fought short of the glory of God. But the law of the Spirit has both right and might. The new power we have of the gift of the Holy Spirit is to be appropriated every day. How often do you pray, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit today? How often do you ask that God would just wash you from head to toe with the power and the love and the grace of his Holy Spirit, that God would wash out the guilt and wash out the condemnation, that God would wash out the desire to live in a life contrary to that which God has set down in Scripture, and that we'd wash in the desire to honor him, but the desire also to live without guilt and condemnation. Because of Jesus, God sets aside the sentence we deserve for sin. He removes the guilt and the stain, and he empowers us to live with God and for God without condemnation and also with a sense of acceptance by the grace of God. And this new power is ours because of Jesus. Secondly, the Holy Spirit brings new desires. Let's read uh, verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have set their minds on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The Bible talks about being worldly or carnal or being spiritual. To be worldly, as the Bible describes it, means setting our minds on pursuing things like image and power and money and prestige and status. It means following the trends of society. And young people especially, can I just say this? The world will tell us to set our standards by what the world says we need to do rather than what my Scripture tells us. The the Scriptures will tell us how to live, and it will give us guidelines for life and principles and ethics and morals. Uh, The world will tell us You don't need to follow that. You need to just do what feels right. As long as you love someone, it doesn't matter what you do. And that's what the Bible describes as a worldly way of living, allowing culture to determine how we live rather than letting Scripture tell us and shape how we live. And so the desire to live according to the world is contrary to what it is to be a Christian. And yet, when we come to Jesus, when we are given the Spirit of God, we have a new desire to honor and glorify God. We have a new desire to live as disciples of Jesus, a new desire to be the ambassadors to the world of Jesus Christ, ambassadors by what we do as well as by what we say. New desires to no longer live for self, but to live in accordance with the will of God. So the new desires that we have are coming to us through the Spirit living in us. Thirdly, I think Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit brings us a new allegiance. Uh, And this follows on from what we've uh, just been saying. Again, maybe uh, if Morris can put those verses up on screen, we'll not uh, necessarily read them, but verses 6 to 9 
speak, I think, of this uh, new allegiance. When I see a sign outside a, a shop or a business saying, under new management, my first question is, what will be different? Maybe the paint is redone, maybe the signage in the shop is redone, but you go in and you still see the same surly-faced person behind the counter who never seemed very interested in what you wanted to buy in the first place. Or maybe you go in and it's a whole new shopping experience. Uh, I I, I well remember my first uh, trip into a a Walmart store in America, and uh, they had a meter and greeter. Hi, welcome to Walmart. Uh, And I couldn't get out quick enough, actually, but anyway, that's another story. But there's a new allegiance. We are under new management. The Holy Spirit is to work in us something that is completely different from that which we've been before and something completely different from what the world expects. And there are three parts to that, I think, in these verses. And let me read verse 6 because this speaks about the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 6, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Now, Paul isn't actually talking of a kind of peace of mind here. In one sense, he is, but he's talking about something more than I've got a peace of mind about this. He's talking about an objective state of peace between God and us as his people. You see, this table reminds us that war has ended. This table reminds us that we were at enmity with God. We were at war with God. We were his enemies and we were under his wrath. But he has brokered peace, not through anything we have done, but through what Jesus has done. So we're no longer at war with God, no longer under condemnation, but we have real life and peace, what the Old Testament would have called shalom, not just the absence of war, but the peace of a right relationship with God, secure as his children and accepted in Christ. And verse 9, Paul says, You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. In other words, we're no longer living in the realm of the flesh or the world. We have been removed from the realm of sinful humanity, ruled and dominated by sin, to live in the realm of the Spirit, a realm ruled by Christ and His righteousness, a realm ruled by life in the Spirit. We live as Christians in a realm dominated by God's Spirit. And again, I wish I could make this clear because it took me many, many years to understand this. You see, as a Christian, when I do wrong, it's because I choose to do it. It's because I want to sin. It's because I want to go my way instead of God's way. It's not because I'm incapable or don't have the power. It's because I choose to sin. And the difference between my life before I became a Christian, if I could remember back that far, because I've been a Christian ever since I can remember practically, but the difference is that on the one hand, those who are not Christians are living in a, in a, in a life and a lifestyle and a, and, a, and a construct for living that is dominated by self and sin and by a slavery to just doing our own thing. I did it my way. 
And when we come into God's kingdom, we are translated from the kingdom of light into, uh, sorry, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. We are translated from being no people to being the people of God. We are translated from being without a family apart from our tiny nuclear earthly families into being the family of God which is worldwide and growing enormously quickly. Huge growth in the church of Jesus Christ in every part of the world except the West. I often wonder if it's because we take so many of our privileges for granted. But you see, the point that Paul is making is this. We are no longer controlled by sin, but by the Holy Spirit. And when we lapse, it's because we want to. Not because we've gone back into the old nature, because you can't go back into that which you've been translated out of. And Paul uses words in other parts of the Scriptures about us being adopted as God's children. Roman adoption was very wholehearted. It was uh, as if you were the real, true, uh, uh, biologically born son or daughter of your parents. You were adopted into the family with all the full rights. We have been adopted into Christ's family. We have all the full rights of being brothers and sisters with Jesus. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Verse 9, what does it say? If the Spirit lives in you. And see, here's the deal. As believers, the Spirit lives in us, and we also are to live in the Spirit. He is the one that Jesus promised would mediate his presence to us, the one who would teach us and lead us into all things uh, regarding to the truth. And this requires from us, I believe, the need for obedience to God's Word. It requires the desire in our hearts to develop relationship with God. It requires a sensitivity developing in us to listen to his voice through Scripture, through prayer, through the advice of trusted Christian friends. But all this is ours if the Spirit lives in you. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. You just can't. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born from, uh, again, he said, you must be born literally from above, supernaturally. It's nothing you can do for yourself. It's only a gift of God. And when we're born of the Spirit, the Spirit lives in us. I could go on. I wonder, I think maybe we should bring things to a halt But I was going to say, um, the Spirit, and by the way, it's my fault just for getting carried away with things. Don't don't blame the the length of the service or anything. Um, The Spirit brings new hope. Uh, Verses 10 to 11, let me just very briefly pick up uh, from what I was going to say. Maybe those verses can go up on, uh, on screen. I would love you tonight, as we take these elements, just to think of this. You have a new hope. And that new hope is that one day you're going to be with Jesus in heaven. Uh, That new hope is that one day you and I are going to see him face to face. All the glory of the angels. I kind of wonder, will they let me in the choir? Kind of wonder, actually, I, I remember when uh, you know, somebody was saying to me earlier about uh, they remember hearing me playing guitar in Orangeville years ago, and I, I feel reluctant to do so because there's so many good players. 
I was the guy in the band that people said, um, Ken, we're playing this one in, uh, in such and such a key. Put your capital up three and play it in G. So then you couldn't play any more than about 12 or 20 chords or something. I wonder whether they let me in to play guitar in heaven. There's a wonderful, wonderful future. I'm looking forward to seeing, will there be cars? Elijah was brought to heaven in a chariot. It gives me hope. What's heaven going to be like? Let this table just tonight blow your mind and say, the Spirit brings new hope. And for you who are younger, forgiven old man, I'm beginning to get just very conscious of the things that begin to, you know, the the old arthritis coming, the hip replacement and all that sort of stuff, you know, and I'm not just quite the person I was, you know, uh, 30 years ago. Not even the person I was last week, but that's another story. There's glory. And I know I'm going. I look forward to going. And when I go, there won't be arthritis in the fingers or arthritic hips or cancer or liver cirrhosis or any of these things that we fear and fight are going to be with Jesus. I'm getting carried away again. The last point I wanted to make was that the Spirit brings new communion. Verses 26 and 27, I could spend so long on these. Maybe I should just read the verses and leave them with you. I love them. Verses 26, 27. The same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for. I love that. Paul, the apostle, sure he had a prayer list a hundred miles long of churches and people and situations, and he says, we do not know what we pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts, God, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. God is praying for you tonight. He's praying for me. And we get all fussed and uptight about what is God's will for my life. Well, the Holy Spirit's praying for God's will for your life to the very throne room of heaven. He's praying for you. It's a new communion that we have. What do you say, anyway, to the one who invented language? I feel intimidated by some people's prayers. Maybe some people feel intimidated by mine. You know, you go to a prayer meeting, and somebody's got all the language of Zion, and they they just trip out all these phrases and words, and you think, wow, you know, I could never do that. reminds me of, uh, of, uh, again, you've heard this before, uh, Linus and Charlie Brown and Lucy are having a chat and they're looking up at the sky and Linus says, well, over there I see a great mountain range like the Alps, majestic, splendoring mountains or whatever he said. Uh, And Lucy says, well, over there I see a castle with flowing ramparts and buttresses and all the rest of it. And Charlie Brown's looking up and he says, I was going to say I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I'll not bother. That's my prayers, folks. This is the God who invented language. This is the God who understands every language that's spoken in the world today, every language that's ever been spoken, and any language that ever is discovered in the future. What do you say 
to the inventor of language. And sometimes it comes down to God be merciful to me, a sinner. The Spirit helps us in our prayers. Let me finish with a quotation from uh, Stuart Briscoe, an Englishman who went to minister with great success in the United States of America. And he sums up uh, this uh, chapter of Romans 8 in these words. Let me read them to you. Living in the Spirit, therefore, introduces us to a relationship of infinite intimacy with the Father. It draws us into a family of gigantic proportions. It grants us insight into the condition of our natural environment, and it urges us to look forward to the consummation of our redemption when with new bodies we live gloriously in the new heaven and the new earth. In the meantime, depending on the Spirit to be the intercessor of our hearts as surely as the risen Lord is our intercessor in the throne room of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would make this word real to our hearts and just grant that we may praise you for the power that you've given us of your spirit to live for Jesus. Amen.